0: This podcast is a 3D audio production, so watch out as sounds may seem to come from beside you or behind you. For the best listening experience, please use headphones.
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Realm presents Orphan Black, the next chapter, starring Tatiana Maslany. Episode 2.
2: While Delphine fiddled with the stove, Cosima let her eyes drift around the kitchen. It was the first room they redid when they started renovations on the originally dilapidated house, and it still felt the most like home to Cosima. It was warm, for one thing, while the still under-renovation living room was drafty, and the small touches that they had unpacked as soon as it was ready reminded Cosima of the travels she had shared with Delphine as they worked to vaccinate clones all over the world. A spice rack from Brazil a hanging vase from Japan now offering a single chrysanthemum, the cloth placemats Delphine had brought from her home in Paris. On the wall by the table hung Cosima's favorite picture from their wedding. They were both laughing. It had been taken during Felix's toast. But Cosima was slightly out of focus, drawing the attention to Delphine, sharp and glowing in her beauty. The picture tickled an alert in Cosima's mind, One that only got louder as her eyes dropped to the table. A big wood trestle they'd picked up in Quebec. Currently adorned with wildflowers in a vase and candles. Oh shit. Delphine, it's our anniversary. It is. Delphine agreed. Looking back over her shoulder with a smile as she took off her apron. That over-the-shoulder look always killed Cosima. And I was late, and I've got all this shit going on." Delphine was still smiling, and Kasima trailed off. "'It's all right, Cherie. Dinner will wait. Come and tell me what happened.'" That backward glance again. Cosima followed her wife through the side door to the glass-enclosed porch that had so far been their biggest project in the remodeling of the house. At this time of year, it was chilly, but not yet unbearable, and the greenish light of the streetlights filtering through the glass was soothing. She hit the switch for the purpose-built air filter and exchanged her glass for the bong sitting on the wicker table. It was already loaded with Wookiee, her favorite strain from their latest batch of new lines coaxed from crossbreeding and genetic manipulation. She lit up and took a deep hit, while Delphine settled into the semi-reclined hammock. So tell me, what did he say that upset you so much? Kasima let the smoke out slowly. She didn't want to be upset. She didn't want to be the one freaking out all the time and forgetting their damn anniversary while Delphine was calm and in control and cooking. He knew I had worked for Dyad. It came out, she thought approvingly, very casual, almost as if she herself didn't think it was a big deal. Delphine was frowning. How could he know that? We've been so careful. They had been. Part of the reason Casimo stuck in this dead-end job she hated was because she had tried to wipe out anything that could connect her in any way to Dyad, Neolution, Brightborn, or clones. She couldn't tell anyone about the vaccine she'd engineered or all the other crazy science she and Delphine had done together in case it led them back to clones. To the fact that she was a clone. Tell me exactly what he said. Delphine said, swaying gently in the hammock. First, he asked why Dyad wasn't on my CV. How did he find out about it? And then he said something about the technology Dyad was working with, but a decade later. Delphine, it's not just the name Dyad. He knows something about what they were working on. The weed was not working and Casimo was close to panic again. Dyad was working on lots of different genetic technologies. Technologies they were very public about, Delphine said soothingly. She shivered suddenly, and Kasima realized her wife was only wearing a light dress. You must be freezing. Cosima took off her coat and snuggled into the hammock next to Delphine, pulling the coat over both of them. Mmm, that's better. They swung quietly for a moment. I just keep thinking, Kasima said finally. What if they have someone who worked at Dyad? Maybe someone who's exchanging their secrets for immunity. But if something like that happened, Delphine said, gently turning Kasima's face back to hers, we would have found out long before now. Maybe, Kasima shook her head. Or maybe they've been waiting for the right moment to act. Or, Delphine wrapped her arms around her wife. Kasima, it's going to be all right. Kasima nestled into Delphine's arms, trying to feel safe. We can't go back to how it was. Running and hiding and always being afraid. Listen, Delphine said firmly, releasing her to arm's length so she could look Kasima in the eye. I have a meeting with that bio threat group tomorrow. Kasima squinched her nose, leaning out of the embrace. What group? Officially, Delphine was a tenured professor at the University of Toronto, but she was well-known as an expert in genetic ethics, and Casima was sure she spent at least half her working hours on committees, working groups, journal editorial boards, and the other trappings of academic stars. The... qest task force? You know, the one on security? They invited me so they could say they had a scientific ethicist involved, I can ask them, see if anyone knows what Greed is working on, okay?" Of course, she was on a government task force. Kasima quashed the quick dart of jealousy. Interesting jobs like that seem to fall in Delphine's lap these days. She was happy for her wife, but it was also hard. They had worked together developing the clone vaccine, and Cosima knew most of the time that she was just as much a scientist as Delphine was. But between taking the time off from her degree to implement the vaccination and needing to hide every shred of her connection with Dyad, she would never get the same recognition. Okay, sure, that could be useful. Cosima nodded, slightly hopeful. Delphine always thought about practical solutions, step by step. But of course, if this is a secret project, Sturgis is going to have kept it, you know, secret. Do you know any more about what the project is about? Delphine was playing with Kasima's hair as she rocked the hammock. He said it was responding to a threat. He said something about how things that were meant to be used to help people could be used to hurt instead. Kasima snorted. Guess he missed the intro to scientific ethics class, if he's just figuring that out now. Kasima thought back to the rest of the conversation, and her amusement disappeared. He said, imagine what other governments could do with the technology. Fazima reached for the bong and took another hit, then took off her glasses and rubbed her eyes. I really thought that going to work for government-sponsored research would be a nice change. Like, they might actually try to do good things with science. Instead, it's just the same old bullshit. Even through her myopia, she could see Delphine's sardonic smile. Mais oui, ma chérie. She answered softly. Ils sont tous comme ça. So cynical. Cosima teased, leaning her head back to smile at Delphine. Come on, they can't all be like that. So awful. Delphine mocked back and lowered her head to kiss Cosima. Mmm, Kasima said presently. Don't you think we should, uh, break for dinner? Dinner? Delphine murmured from somewhere along the nape of Kasima's neck. You know... The stuff you were cooking. Cosima couldn't keep in a decadent laugh as Delphine triggered shivers up and down her spine, but she still hesitated. Charlotte could come up here any minute. And what? She will be shocked? Delphine laughed herself, low and devastating. Besides, she won't. She knows it's our anniversary. In that case... Cosima said, turning over to take the lead. The cake... Delphine bolted up, knocking the hammock a kilter, and ran for the kitchen. Kasima got up more slowly, running her hand through her short locks and pulling down her shirt. Now that she thought about it, she did smell a faint scent of burning, and by the time she got to the kitchen, Delphine was pulling a round, slightly singed cake out of the oven. It's fine, Cosima said, trying not to giggle. Just slather enough icing on it, and no one will know. I wanted it to be so nice. Delphine pouted, then recovered. I suppose we could cut off the burned parts? Totally. Casima agreed, finally letting herself laugh. I love you. I love you too. Delphine said, her smile resurfacing. She turned and dipped a spoon into the stew, took a taste, and passed it to Kasima. A little cold. I'll reheat. Mmm, Casima said. That's, like, really good. She wondered if she dared mention that it could use more garlic. Delphine could be a little touchy about her cooking. She realized she had left her glass on the porch and instead of going to get it, reached into the cabinet above the sink for a new one and poured in some wine from the bottle on the counter. This tech he was talking about. Delphine turned with a look of exasperation but was distracted by the wine. That's what I was using for cooking, Cherie. Here, drink this one. I'm looking for effectiveness, not quality, Cosima said, but she accepted the replacement and took a sip. As usual, in matters of wine at least, Delphine was right. It did matter. She sighed. I totally should have played along to find out what they're up to. Something horrible, I'm sure. Delphine said, scowling as she sipped her own wine. You were right not to get involved. I don't know. Even though the idea of working with Sturgis now creeped her out, Cosima wasn't sure she liked the idea of not getting involved. If they are doing something horrible, maybe I should be involved. Ignoring it doesn't mean it's not happening. Remembering more of the interview now that she was a little more relaxed, Cosima almost missed Delphine's warning glare. He mentioned my work on genome mapping and gene based vaccinations. Delphine, I haven't published the vaccination work. How did he know about that? I don't care. Delphine growled, brandishing the wooden spoon. I don't want him mapping your genome. I don't want him anywhere near your genome. Cosima couldn't hold back her smile. She leaned in. You're very protective of my genome. Delphine tried to keep her fierce expression on, but gave in. I am. She whispered. I like your genome very much. Their lips met. Cosima leaned into the kiss, feeling her anger and frustration start to drift away. When at last it ended, she lay her head on Delphine's shoulder. Speaking of your genome, Delphine said softly. Kasima closed her eyes. She knew what was coming. Have you given it any more thought? Delphine asked. Cosima pulled away. Delphine, every time I think about having a baby, our own baby, every time I think about what we would have to do, I remember... What? Delphine asked gently when the pause had gone on too long. I remember that moment when we were sitting in Felix's apartment and we decoded that bit of DNA that said... that said... That identified you as patented. Delphine put her hand on Cosima's. I remember. But Cherie, this is nothing like what was done to you. It is exactly like it. Cosima groaned. Creating a person. She stopped. It is a common technology. Delphine said with the annoyance of someone stating an obvious fact and not for the first time. It's being used all the time and you wouldn't... It's not common. Kasima said, tugging at her locks in frustration. Creating a viable embryo from the DNA from two eggs is totally experimental. The techniques that compose the process are in common use. Delphine shot back. She was speaking quickly now, her accent more pronounced with her frustration. There is nothing dangerous about it. And you wouldn't allow anyone to suggest that a person with that origin story were any less than human? Kasima smiled involuntarily. Origin story is a phrase usually used about superheroes, she said. And do you think our child would be anything less than a superhero? Kasima tried to smile again, but that phrase, our child, terrified her. I know you want this, she whispered, but I'm just not sure. It's fine, Delphine said and turned her back on Kasima to set the table. You need time. Kasima opened and closed her mouth. They had been married seven years tonight, but she wasn't sure more time was going to make any
1: difference to how she felt.
0: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Charlotte Bowles was working on a paper, but she couldn't help hearing Cosima and Delphine on the floor above, their footsteps and muffled voices tracing the pattern of their quarrels and reconciliations. It didn't sound like the anniversary dinner was going exactly as planned. Charlotte was staying down here tonight. She was following the complicated trail of internet research when her phone rang. Hey, Kira, she said. Charlotte? Kira sounded worked up about something. In their shared standing as outliers in the tight circle of clone sestras, Charlotte, because she was so much younger, Kira, because she was a daughter, Charlotte had taken on the role of the even-keeled, A-average, good daughter. Kira was brilliant, too, but she had a much more difficult time at school, culminating in an incident last spring that had led to her taking some time off this year. And she could be a roller coaster ride emotionally. I'm running away from home. Case in point. What's going on? Charlotte asked, more curious than alarmed. She couldn't imagine ever wanting to run away from home herself, but Kira's situation was different. Just my mom, Kira answered, breathless with disgust. I can't stand being home with her all the time. I thought you were trying to get re-enrolled? I was, but we went to talk to Principal Fraser about it, and he called me inappropriate. Charlotte snorted. I know, right? But it pissed Mum off, and she said it was much more inappropriate that he was sleeping with Mrs. Evans, the science teacher. What? Charlotte choked. I know she was trying to stand up for me, but now there's no way I'm getting back in. At least not to that school. Meanwhile, she and my dad are giving it a go again, so you can imagine what that's going to be like. Charlotte preferred not to. So, now I'm stuck at home. Kira was still talking. And she's so overprotective, I can't do anything. She won't let me take an internship. She does background checks on all my friends. I can't put any photos on social media. I can't even go out for hockey. Kira, you hate hockey. That's not the point. The point is I can't do anything because somebody might learn our precious secrets or try to steal my DNA. Well, Charlotte said, they might. Sure, they might. Kira agreed. But constantly imagining that they will means I can't live my life. I just can't take her shit right now. Charlotte, who had lost her mother when she was eight, said nothing. Kira sighed. Charlotte didn't have to speak. They had had this conversation before. I know, I know. She loves me and would do anything for me, and I should be grateful to have her. I am grateful to have her. But sometimes I just need a break. So, where are you going? Charlotte asked, her fingers still absently scrolling through websites for her paper research. I've got this awesome internship, Kira answered, her excitement bubbling up through her tone. I'll be doing something that literally makes a difference instead of hiding in my house while Mum tries to teach me algebra she doesn't understand. Charlotte drew in breath to ask how exactly she was going to be making a difference, but Kira went on hurriedly. You can't tell my mom, though. She would hate this idea, like, really hate it. That, Charlotte thought, had to be part of the appeal. In the background of the call, she heard what sounded like a PA announcement. Are you at the bus station? Kira laughed. (laughs) Ha! Listen to you, the detective. Art would be so proud. Yes, I'm at the bus station, on my way to the city. So, can you cover for me? Uh, what? Charlotte should have known she was going to get drawn into this. I'm supposed to be staying with Aunt Cos and Aunt Delphine to get away for a little, but I finally managed to work out this internship and it's perfect and I just need a bit of alone time. Just tell them I'm staying with friends instead and ask them not to tell my mom. Please? She would never let me, but this is really important. I didn't realize you were running away from my home, Charlotte said dryly. This way she won't worry too much, Kira said. Hmm said Charlotte. Who are these? And then she stopped, stuttered almost, as she reversed direction on her scroll to find the picture she had just seen. She found it and clicked, then scanned the page it brought up. Kira, I have to go. Call me later, okay? Be safe. Charlotte grabbed her laptop and careened up the steps as quickly as her articulated brace. She preferred the term exoskeleton would allow, which was pretty fast. Delphine used her contacts in the biomedical field to get her prototypes of the latest versions as they came out. Lately, Charlotte had been thinking about how the improved exoskeletons were getting close to making her look and walk almost like everyone else, and felt torn that such an important part of her identity was gradually becoming harder and harder for people to see. She had joined the Disability Policy and Activism Club at uni, and a lot of the discussions were about what Charlotte thought of as the glasses versus contact lenses problem. There was another interesting thread about the nature versus nurture problem, disabilities resulting from genetic difference as opposed to those accumulated in accidents. But Charlotte, as a clone 16 years younger than hundreds of her genetic identicals, had an unusual perspective on that one that she had to keep to herself. She burst into the kitchen and skidded to a stop. Cosima was standing to one side, looking out the windows at the dark street while Delphine was setting the table, and the air was singing with tension. Am I interrupting something? No, of course not. Delphine averred. In fact, we were just about to ask you to join us for dinner. Good, Charlotte said, putting her laptop on the table between them. Because you need to see this now. Cosima leaned over to look at Charlotte's laptop. The screen showed a spare dime page for a woman suffering from an undiagnosed disease in Boston. Charlotte, Delphine said, I can understand why you're upset, but this is not uncommon for people living in the U.S. I understand about healthcare in the U.S., Tom Delphine, Charlotte said, managing not to roll her eyes. I'm writing a paper on crowdfunding healthcare costs for my medicine and society class. That's how I found this. Look at the picture. Cosima refocused on the picture in the upper left of the screen. It was a candid shot, shadows falling harshly over the smiling face. But the tingle of recognition was unmistakable. The woman was a clone. An unknown clone who was not on Rachel's Lita list. And she was ill. Vivi was already wearing dark clothes. She pulled a black watch cap over her red curls and crossed the street, heading for Grit's side door. It was supposed to be an emergency exit, but the alarm was disabled, probably because it was the closest door to the staff parking lot. She had picked the lock on her last visit, so she knew exactly what to expect. The internal security cordoning off the classified research area was a little trickier, and Vivi froze once on her way through the lab at the sight of a blurred face in the dimness, only to realize it was a warped reflection staring back at her from the panel of a steel refrigerator. Even so, she was crouched beside Sturgis' desk a cool 23 minutes after the last staff member left Grit. Yes, she had timed herself. His office projected an odd mix of bureaucrat and scientist. Clearly, he did most of his work at the desk, where a computer was under siege by papers and files— but the shelves on the wall were stacked with strange objects in fluid-filled jars, helical models, small bones, and beakers with colorful glowing liquids that could have been interior design or experiments in progress. He had what looked like a small but functioning lab in one corner, with an electron microscope, a number of petri dishes and eyedroppers, and even a safety shower. The whole thing served to remind Vivi that she might be dealing with something far outside her usual experience here, so she took the uncharacteristically careful precaution of pulling on a pair of gloves before flipping through his paper files in the light of her tiny over-the-ear flashlight. Her hard drive plus auto hacker, shaped like an earring for easy and unobtrusive transport, was systematically attacking his computer via USB port, copying files as they were unlocked. Vivi's fingers paused, although it took a few seconds for her brain to catch up with what triggered her attention. She flipped back one file and took in the title, Targeting Agent to Genetics. It was probably the agent that caught her eye, but as Vivi skimmed through the document, more phrases leapt out at her. Shortcut genome targeting, viral manipulation, refining delivery system. Vivi had only a general understanding of genetics but she had seen a lot of weapon systems and a lot of obfuscating descriptions of weapon systems. This one, the idea of using genetics to target some kind of bioweapon, was particularly terrifying. The possibility of this being an intentional attack was starting to seem more and more likely. Was this how they had attacked the agent's family so precisely? What exactly had the disease done to them? Vivi tried to imagine what it might feel like if your DNA changed. She glanced around the room again, noting a skeletal fragment that looked like a clawed hand. With a shudder, she glanced back up at the title of the file and it clicked. Tag. This was what Sturgis had been talking about on the payphone. She pulled out the file and flipped it open, taking pictures of each page. As Vivi glanced through the descriptions of painstaking experimentation and notes on the debugging of code for some specialized biological manipulation equipment, she kept seeing that woman's face from the street outside Grit. Who was she? She didn't seem like an operative, and yet her encounter with Sturgis had been odd, fraught with insinuations and double meanings. Vivi had a rule about not obstructing her hearing during an operation, but she slipped one earbud in anyway, and replayed the conversation as her fingers kept running through the files. She would swear Niehaus and Sturgis weren't in cahoots. Niehaus had been shocked, maybe frightened by whatever Sturgis was trying to suggest. What was Dyad? Unwillingly, Vivi replayed that glimpse of her face again. Her eyes like Vivi's, if Vivi wore that much eyeliner. Her nose like Vivi's, if hers hadn't been broken that time in Bukhara. Her mouth the same her ears the same. If Vivi had known that someone who looked so much like her had access to grit, she could have just impersonated her. Vivi had a sudden flash of memory, something she had tried to bury for years. She was in a living room that wasn't her own, pretending to be someone she wasn't, someone who looked just like her. They had switched clothes and hairstyles and gone to each other's houses. Her hair was falling out of the clumsy pigtails the other girl had done for her, She remembered the thrill and fear of being found out. It was the rush she had been chasing ever since. Vivi shook her head. It wasn't a real memory, just one of the stories she told herself as a child featuring the pretend Vivies, a chorus line of imaginary friends who looked just like her. Her parents had eventually become concerned at how tightly she clung to the fantasy and had arranged unofficial meetings with a therapist unofficial so it wouldn't hurt her chances with the agency. When she was in high school, determined to enter clandestine operations as soon as her parents would allow it, Vivi had been desperately afraid the delusion was indicative of some psychological weakness that would block her from becoming an agent. More recently, she had thought of it with a tinge of shame. It seemed like a pretty clear sign of narcissism. Now she remembered vividly the sense of seeing her own face smiling back at her. A door opened outside Sturgis' office. Vivi was flattened to the wall beside the door before the light went on in the anteroom, throwing a chilly square of light through the frosted glass panel. She was barely breathing. How could she have gotten so distracted? The door handle turned and Sturgis strode in quickly. No hesitation. No suspicion someone might be there. No apparent container of deadly germs. Vivi exhaled only to discover a different kind of panic. She couldn't get caught, and especially not in fucking Canada. Even if she didn't get burned, she'd die of shame. And if she did get burned, she would lose her whole life, her identity. She was calculating the odds of edging around the open door and escaping when Sturgis, seeing the files on the table, whirled. He started, then relaxed. Dr. Niehaus, what are you... He stopped, stared. There was no way he would buy it. They didn't look that much alike, but Vivi felt herself slipping on Niehaus' personality anyway, because that's what she did. Director Sturgis, sorry, I should have called, but I was thinking about what you said, and I want to reconsider. Sturgis's mouth was open, and Vivi could see him balancing on the rim of belief. I have this total knee-jerk reaction to classified research just run for the hills. Good thing Vivi had just listened to that conversation again. Niehaus's accent was fresh in her mind, as was the content. She took a risk. But you can probably understand that. Sturgis's florid face bloomed with complicity. I suppose that does make sense, yes, after what happened with Diet. That's actually exactly why I thought you might be able to shed some light on my current. He was slowing down, his brain catching up with the situation. She had to keep him moving. So perhaps you could tell me more, Vivi suggested, stepping forward as though to sit in the chair in front of his desk. She was on the crest of an adrenaline wave. I'm really curious to know how I can help. She added an element of shy flirtation to her smile. Everything she knew about Sturgis, from his work history to his tailored suit and expensive haircut, told her he would go in for admiration. Well, I can't talk about the details right now, Sturgis said, moistening his lips. He hadn't stepped back, so they were only a foot apart now. There's paperwork, of course, the NDA, the exact offer. Translation, he's not supposed to be telling anyone anything, Vivi thought. But perhaps we could have an exchange of information. I can give you the broad outlines. He leaned forward. If you could tell me about the... And then he stopped, very suddenly. Vivi waited with an expression of expectant innocence that had served her well in the past. Dr. Sturgis? His stare didn't waver. Vivi wasn't sure he had even heard her. Panic raced through her. She couldn't get burned. Not here, not now. Her job was the only thing she was good at. The only thing she cared about. She couldn't manage a long-term relationship. She barely had any friends outside the agency. She'd never even picked up a fucking hobby. Her job let her be the person she wanted to be. A competent badass while helping to keep her country safe. She wasn't going to lose it all over this asshole. You're not Cassima Nehouse. Vivi kept her expression gently surprised while she took a slow breath in preparation for violence. But what Sturgis said next knocked the wind out of her. You're one of them, aren't you? Oh my god. Oh my god. You have to understand. I didn't know. I didn't realize. He was backing away from her now, trying to get behind the desk. Vivi tried to suck in breath. What was he talking about? One of them. Sturgis babbled on. I thought they were just, I don't know, maybe computer-modeled genomes. I know it wasn't realistic, the epigenetic markers. I suppose I saw what I wanted to see. I was so desperate to test the technology. You understand, this could be something really positive, really important, but Davis told me. Vivi was following him, step by cautious step. Sturgis kept babbling. You really look just like her. I suppose that makes sense. He giggled in a truly terrifying way, and Vivi closed the distance until she was in reach of him. Incredible. Just incredible. Sturgis raised a hand as if to touch her hair, and Vivi kicked him. She struck him, hard, just above the knee, and he doubled over in pain, which gave her a chance to put him in a submission hold. Whatever was going on here, she had to know. What are you talking about? What makes sense? Who is Niehaus? She hissed in his ear. I don't... I, I barely know her. I don't know anything about that program. It was decades ago. You must know more about it than I do. What the hell did that mean? Vivi twitched his arm upward a notch. Ah! I swear to you, I didn't know. It was... it was supposed to help. It wasn't even... He gasped for breath with a half-sob. I wasn't even trying to justify the means, you know. I didn't realize they were bad means. He lied to me, and now the whole program is compromised. His voice was laced with horror, and the word compromised opened a chasm in the pit of Vivi's stomach. She remembered she was supposed to be asking him about the attack, not about the mysterious Dr. Niehaus. The genetic weapon, she whispered. This tag project, tell me about that. It was supposed to be a technology that would heal people. Sturgis stammered. I didn't quite trust them, though, and I needed a way to test it. What them? Vivi grunted into his ear. Who the fuck are they? But Sturgis was incoherent with terror now. You're from the U.S., aren't you? Oh my god. Listen, it could have been fatal. I just, I can't trust anyone now. You and nehouse you're working together. Please believe me, I didn't, I wouldn't. What did you do? Vivi yelled, shaking him in pure frustration, but his arm was sweaty and somehow he twisted away from her, scrabbling away toward the small lab area in the corner of the room. Vivi dove at him, hitting at the waist and pulling him down. She had him again, but even as he fell, he managed to snatch something off the shelves. His hand jerked, the liquid flew into her face, and suddenly Vivi was blinded by searing pain tears coursing uselessly from her eyes. Vivi felt Sturgis stumble away from her and she lurched desperately forward, hands extended. The pain almost drove her to her knees, but she found the wall and scrabbled along it, aware that she was sobbing, until her fingers found the cool relief of the safety shower handle and yanked. She and the pain were immediately doused by a small lake's worth of water falling from the ceiling. Choking and snuffling, Vivi managed to blink her eyes open. The world was blurry, but it was there. She wasn't blind, and the relief was enough to clear her head through the remnants of the pain. Still gasping through a Niagara Falls of tears and snot, Vivi ran for the door. She couldn't let Sturgis get away. Cosima was pacing, dinner forgotten. I knew we should have gone public. This was what she had feared for years, and it had come true. Rachel's list was incomplete. There could be hundreds of clones out there in need of treatment, and we have no way of finding them. The risks, Delphine began, but could seem a world, cutting her off. The risk is that people died, that we missed vaccinating them because they weren't on the list, and they died without ever knowing why, what they were dying from, or the fact that they were... Cosima trailed off. Despite many nights of lying awake wondering, she had never been able to decide whether it was more ethical to tell the unaware clones what they were or to leave them ignorant. Announcing the clone program on our terms could make a lot of things easier. Charlotte began in her usual understated tone, but Delphine cut her off. "'We've been through this. It's too dangerous,' she said with certainty. "'People will react with fear and anger.' And even aside from that, Delphine turned to Cosima. What will it do to your career? Is that what the superstar ethics professor tells us to do? Cosima shot back furious now. Think about our careers while people are dying? You don't know, Delphine started. No, you don't know, Kasima shouted. You don't know what it's like to find out your entire identity is in question and to be utterly alone at that moment. To realize that if anyone ever finds out, that is all they will ever see of you. She stepped forward into Delphine's space. You think it's bad that I can't put all my experience on my CV? That I can't get a better job? I'm terrified to speak at conferences. I don't use a profile picture anywhere. I can't do public appearances on TV the way you do. Delphine stepped back her expression going cold, and Cosima realized she had let too much bitterness into that last sentence. Have you considered, she said, and Cosima braced herself, because it was the calm, icy tone Delphine used when she was really angry. That maybe you want people to know about clones because fighting Dyad was more exciting than your life is now? That's not... The life, I might add, which you once told me was everything you ever wanted? That's unfair! Stung, Cosima tried to find a way to answer. Just because I hate having to hide my identity and what that means for my career doesn't mean I don't love our life. And you. No, it's about the women who are sick and I'm here sipping Merlot and doing nothing. You did do something. Delphine snapped. She sighed and continued in a softer tone. You beat it, Cosima. We beat it together. And we helped... Everyone we could find. 249 women, Kasima. We saved them together. And that's a burgundy. We should have helped everyone, Cosima said. But she couldn't make herself yell it. Her attention caught on Charlotte, pressed up against a wall as if she wished she could disappear back into the basement. And now this woman is going through it. And she's all alone. Cosima could feel her eyes and nose leaking embarrassingly, and rubbed the back of her hand across her face. You can't blame yourself, Delphine went on. She reached out to cup Kasima's face. I know this is a stressful time for you. I know you're unhappy at work. Kasima shook her head, looking away. But you have to see that there are risks both ways. If you go public, you won't be able to control what happens. This situation, it makes people very... Angry or greedy or frightened. I know that. Delphine put her hand on her belly, a reminder of the scar from when she was shot. None of you would be safe. She went on, addressing Charlotte now. Everyone's identity will be public whether they like it or not. We could have at least told all the clones we vaccinated, Cosima said. Explained to them what we were doing. What they are. But she hadn't been sure then, and she wasn't really sure now. That wouldn't have helped this one unknown clone, chérie, Delphine pointed out gently. But who knows how many more could be out there? Cosima couldn't stand this idea of women suffering, maybe dying, while she held the cure and did nothing. We can try facial recognition scans, Charlotte said eagerly. I can set up a program to search on social media. Perhaps there is a way I can use my contacts in the medical field. Delphine said. She rubbed Kasima's back. It's going to be okay. We'll find a way. We always do. Kasima managed a small smile. I'm sorry I freaked out. It's just... This is exactly what I was afraid of. I know, Cherie. Delphine tugged Kasima into another embrace. Hey, Charlotte said suddenly, too excited to wait for her aunts to untangle themselves. Look at this. Cosima and Delphine leaned over her shoulder. Cosima focused on the name. Dana Emmett. Look at the age, Charlotte prodded. Kasima frowned. Twenty-eight? Six years younger than she was. Ten years older than Charlotte. Is it possible she is not Lita? Not Neolution? Delphine asked. The refrigerator hummed in the shocked silence. How is that possible? Kasima asked finally. I don't know, Delphine answered. Certainly, Dyad didn't know about it, or at least there were no records. My mom tried for years. Kasima felt her face go red as they both turned to Charlotte. She was so quiet, so well-adjusted, so at home with Art and with them that it was easy to forget about her Dyad childhood with Marion Bowles. She finally managed with me, Charlotte went on. But maybe somebody else got it right sooner. Cosima kept her gaze locked on Charlotte's face so it wouldn't drift down to where Charlotte was absently tugging at her leg brace. So what are you saying? Someone was trying to replicate the Duncans' work outside of Dyad? Maybe, Charlotte offered hopefully. There could be another generation, Maybe whoever managed it also did further tweaks, and the illness... Shit! Kasima burst out. Speaking of generations, Kira was supposed to be here by now. Kira is coming. Delphine asked. Kasima waved her hands in apology. Sarah just called me as I was leaving Grit, and then with everything else, I forgot. But she should have gotten here by now. Kasima pulled out her phone. I hope she's okay. Uh, actually, she's not coming, Charlotte said. Cosima and Delphine turned to look at her. She called me, and she's staying with friends instead. With friends? Delphine asked. Yes, friends, Charlotte said. She was facing them straight on, not looking away or making puppy eyes, and suddenly Cosima was reminded of art. And she was hoping you wouldn't mention it to her mom. Cosima exhaled noisily. So we're covering for her. It's fine, Charlotte said. I stay over with friends all the time, and Kira really needs some time away from... She gestured in a way that encompassed not only Sarah, but all of Clone World. Sarah's going to be pissed if she finds out, Kasima said. She wasn't sure she wanted to put herself in the way of that particular guided missile. On the other hand, she could totally see where Kira was coming from. Their relationship had gotten increasingly difficult over the last few years, as Kira pushed for more independence and Sarah got increasingly protective. You can't tell on her. Cosima, please. Charlotte took a step forward. Sarah will freak out and that will only make things worse. Please. Kira's only trying to do normal things for someone our age. And she can take care of herself, I promise. I don't know. Cosima's phone buzzed suddenly against her hand and she almost dropped it before she could get it turned over to read the screen. What is it? Delphine asked, seeing Cosima's frown. An alert from the university, Cosima said, with a shiver of fear. Something's going on. Delphine and Charlotte followed her as she speed walked into the living room and turned on the TV, flipping to a local news channel. The screen showed a wall of flames. A crawler along the bottom read, Local scientist Nathaniel Sturgis believed dead. Grit just blew up.
1: You're listening to Orphan Black, the next chapter. Starring Tatiana Maslany. Produced by Realm. Your portal to another world. Lindsay Smith, Madeline Ashby, Michelle Baker, E.C. Myers, and Helly Kennedy. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, David Fortier, Ivan Shebeg, and Carrie Appleyard. in partnership with Boat Rocker Media and BBC America. Audio produced, sound designed, and edited by Amanda Rose Smith based on the television series Orphan Black. The theme music is by Two Fingers.